Good morning, elect exiles. If you're new with us, we're completing today uh, our study of First Peter, uh, and, and Peter opens with that address to the church uh, as elect exiles. And well, each sermon, each uh, message, we've 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 heard that. And I, I, if that's what we take away, that's that's progress. I believe those two words have to be understood together. Uh, as I thought about Peter and, and how this message is helpful for today, and well, what would have been like a you know a couple decades ago, I, it is interesting. I'm thankful I'm preaching this passage today and not the 80s or the 90s, what some of us call the good old days. I I think the burden then would have been convincing Christians they were exiles. I think the hard part of then may have been actually helping those who were living in the comfort and the prosperity and, and everything just seeming like it's going along swimmingly. Now, it was not a Christian culture, but it was, it was a little easier. It was a little different. I think the burden would have been to convince you you're in exile and to, to hope for heaven and that there's a, a new, better way of living than, well, what our prosperity and our consumer society gives us. Well, today, I, I believe it's a little easier to convince you you're in exile. But we need to be convinced you're God's elect. That, that God in his power and his love has come down to you to draw you up to him. That, that God's plan and will are perfect and powerful and good in the midst of suffering in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of what feels like hostility? There, there's, there's good questions to ask in the midst of difficulty. There's, there's right questions. There's a, there's a whole theology of suffering we have to be able to take into the world. We've always been exiles. And by God's grace, those who are called to him are always his elect. It's complicated to make sure we hold these two things together rightly. Now, this morning we're looking at the last section of First Peter. We're, we're concluding this study. It's too easy to oversimplify God's truth. Either we're, we're kind of exiles, we feel like that even with God, or we're, we're elect, we just think everything's fine and nothing should go wrong. Now, it's, it's, it's complicated because sin has complicated things and we live in a fallen world. I want you to notice here these, these last charges, these last instructions, they... They give us different directions to consider. As elect exiles, we have a new way of relating to those within the church. That's marked by humility. We, we have a, a, an important way in which we look outside of the world. There's alertness. There's watchfulness. And then there's a way we look up to God. Yeah, with, with humility, we, we're looking up with hope. This morning, we're going to consider humility in the church makes us strong to resist evil while we wait for God's glory. Humility in the church makes us strong to resist evil while we wait for God's glory. There's three points, humble, watchful, hopeful. Well, Dara there read six. I'm, I'm going to start back in verse 5b with clothe yourselves. Last week, we looked at the charge to the elders, shepherd, charge to the younger, the, the church members, I believe, submit. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. I, I, I left that somewhat just as kind of the informing declaration that helps you understand shepherding and, and, and submitting. But I want to I work with this a little bit more because, well, verse 6 flows out of verse 5. Elders, shepherd, and oversee, youngers, or members, they submit to the elders, both having clothed themselves with humility. Well, that, the shepherding, the flock, that makes sense because that really defines what shepherding and oversight look like. As, as Christ came as the shepherd who came to serve the sheep, there's a way in which that upside-down kingdom of Christ uh, it, it, it informs how he oversees and cares and, and teaches, and therefore there's an important lesson there for elders. And that it, 
that command is also important because shepherds could forget their sheep sometimes. The submitting with humility, that one's a little more challenging because those two words are so similar. How do we think about submitting with humility? Those, those aren't exactly the same, even though they're very related. As I've wrestled with this and talked to a couple other pastors and, and read about it, maybe, maybe, maybe oversimplify, but I'm going to try to make some distinctions. Humility, there's a, more of a posture. Kind of your, the self-awareness. The way you identify yourself in relation to, well, you, your neighbors, those around you, and, and to God. Submission, as we've looked at it, really has more of a practice because of a position. Wives to husbands, slaves to masters, citizens to a governor. There, there's more of a station in life aspect that is meant to change the way we do defer, but also deploy our resources. There's a, a practice from position with submission, whereas humility is much more of a heart posture. That obviously is needed for submission. I just want to think about what it means to uh, clothe yourself with humility. You, you, something you put on, all believers. True humility is, is really just sanity. It's a right understanding of who you are as an image bearer, created. It's a right understanding of who you are in relation to God, your creator, who has given you great dignity, worth, and value as a human being. And, and it's a right recognition of who you are as a believer, beloved of God, elect, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. True, true humility isn't what we oftentimes think of humility as a, a false humility, just kind of degrading ourselves unnecessarily. No, no, true humility is sanity. Seeing ourselves properly in light of what God has said. Who we truly are in relation to him and others. Regarding God, he is our creator and we must listen to him, submit to him, and obey him. Regarding all humans, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're, we're equals. We remember earlier the list of commands from Peter. Honor everyone. Because we're all equal. We're all worthy of the same dignity and worth. Now, clothing yourself with humility towards one another, that, that's a different kind of posture, though. Because, as Peter said, honor everyone, he also said love the brotherhood. Here, the command is focused on one another, the fellow believers, those who are adopted in the same household of God. There's a, a, a humility that's important for us, and really, it, it should be the easiest one to obey. Because if, if we're one another, that means we know we're creatures. It, it also means we know we're, we're sinners. It also means we, we know we've been saved. We, we've all been bought by the same blood. We, we all have the same access. We all have the same position there under the cross as worshipers. There's a wonderful way in which the, common, the, the, the same mind should produce the same humility. The same belief should produce the same kind of posturing towards one another. Wait, he says clothe yourselves with humility. It's, it's something you, as, as, as intentional as you were to put on your clothes today, you, it's something you must be intentional about. Because in sin, it, it's not our natural disposition. But by nature, sin is thinking too much of ourselves. It's something we must be mindful of put on towards one another a right understanding of who we are, of who each other are. All under God, all in Christ, all sealed by the same Holy Spirit, all made anew by the same promises and power of God. Now, the, the reason he gives at the end of verse 5, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, that seems to be a, a paraphrase from Proverbs 3. We, we actually could hear those, those teachings in Hannah's song and Mary's song. In the study of Luke, we continue to see God in his upside-down kingdom takes low the proud and, and, and lifts up the, the humble. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble. He, he's one of the same God. There's two ways to relate to him. And, and notice it depends on how we're approaching him and others. Are we proud? Are we humble? Are, are we sane and thinking rightly under God? Or have we believed lies that make us think too much or too little of ourselves? Practically, there's just a, an incredible self-awareness of who we are under God. If we want to know what wisdom looks like, wisdom begins with knowing ourselves and God. Practically, this is a self-awareness. Now, common grace would teach humility by saying you should consider walking a mile in their shoes. That's not unhelpful. That's that's common grace, though, to to consider what is it like to be in their shoes? What is it like to be on that side? And, And there's a helpful way in which that could give you a vantage point that allows you to have sympathy and and care and and have a a humility towards the other person that either you have a conflict with or or whatever it may be. But God's given us something much more rich. We can actually have humility towards one another by seeing ourselves and our relationships under God's goodwill. God, God has told us all in the church who we are. We don't need to think about just how to walk a mile in their shoes, but no, we, we can all recognize who we are under God in the way he's expressed his will. Over and over again through First Peter, he's, he's told us his will. Humility begins by recognizing God has a good will and he's revealed it to us and we're all humbling ourselves before him. Practically, church, this means we speak the truth in love. If you want to know what is the practical way to humble ourselves, to clothe ourselves in humility, it's, it's speaking with one another. How, how, do we, how do we relate? How do we speak? What are the, what are the, what's the content? What's the posture? See, God defines love as promise-making and promise-keeping. It's a commitment kind of love, not a feeling kind of love. God defines Truth, he, he is truth. He's, he's come to, to actually save us from my truth, to bring us into true truth. If, if we're speaking to another with love, for the benefit of the other, if we're speaking to one another with the truth, what God has said, we're, we're pulling each other up to Christ, who is the model of truth and love, instead of pushing away. Notice, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. What would it look like for God to oppose the proud? And here, he is speaking to Christians. There's a a warning for believers and that God could oppose the proud. And what this could at least look like the warning has for husbands. That if you do not honor your wife, God stops listening to your prayers. That, that at least could be one of the ways God opposes a, a proud believer, which should be terrifying. The, the opposition being our pride, our sin, our rebellion, our, our, our not putting on the humility of Christ would, would keep God, would make an obstacle for God to hear our prayers. Another way we think about God opposes the proud, well, Praise God, he disciplines those he loves. By, by, by being opposed there, he's, he's, he's going to transform us. He's going to change us. There's a way in which difficult things come into a believer's life when they're rebellious, when they're disobedient. No one rejoices in the discipline in the moment. Very few. It's rare. I won't say no one. It's rare in my observation. Afterwards, we're able to see what God was doing. Afterwards, we're able to, 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 to be thankful for what God is doing. He is our good Father who disciplines us. Well, the way in which we can think about God opposing the proud is maybe even more terrifying than not hearing our prayers, but what he does in Romans is that he, he would just give you over to your sin. He would let you go down the prideful spiral of self-deception and self-indulgence that 
that destroys. That, that is an ultimate judgment for sinners. But, but believer, if, if God were to discipline you by giving you over to the sin you're actually pursuing over against him, that, that would be devastating. In, in terms of feeling the full weight and consequence of the sin we're in seeking to enjoy before he were to call us back. God opposes the proud. Notice verse 6 where our technical sermon text picks up. Therefore. Right, there, there, there's a call to be humble among one another because we all have the same gospel truths in common. There's a truth of God that he is a God who gives grace to the humble. It, he opposes the proud. Now he, he, he directs us in a different, direct, in a different way here to, to God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humbling ourselves before one another is, goes hand in hand with being humble before God. Humility here, that's just among equals. Image bearers, saved by the same blood, but humbling ourselves before God, well, that should be a no-brainer. He's God, we're not. We're, we're weak, he is mighty. Notice what Peter says as a purpose for why you would humble yourself before God. So that he will exalt you. Now, if you want a simple summary of what's wrong with us, it's that we seek our own exaltation in our own way. This is a simple summary of sin. Seeking our exaltation, our satisfaction, our delight, our resolution in our own way, rather than trusting God to actually exalt us in the way he has decided. Is trusting God's ways are better than our ways. That's the right way of seeking humility. We, we should trust his commands are better than our morals. We should trust his will is right over against our sinful desires. We should trust he is just and generous. His blessings are better than things we actually want. He's the one who pulls us out of trouble and into eternal rewards. The, the key here is do we actually trust God? God to give us everything that is right and good? Do, do we trust him enough to humble ourselves, to, to trust him that he will exalt us? If we, you go back and you, you read those prayers of Hannah and Mary. In the midst of confusing, difficult, painful times, they're trusting the God who exalts they're trusting the God who is good beyond what they understand. It's very important for us to understand as elect exiles because we live in the upside down kingdom. According to Christ, according to the kingdom of heaven, suffering is the path to glory. That's, that's one of the major motifs we've seen throughout 1 Peter. According to Jesus' very straightforward teaching, whoever seeks to be great, well, they, they seek to serve. They seek to be lowly. And then the very clear teaching of this passage that's throughout Scripture. God exalts the lowly and brings down the proud. Let's go back to the garden. God gave man everything they could ever want. God gave man things he didn't even know he needed. But the temptation was, oh no, he... He's, he's holding back. He, there's something better for you than what God has. There's, there's a way in which you can take matters into your own hands and get a better exaltation and position than what God's given you. You can see better if you just take things in your own hands. And seeking to see better, they lost everything. Humbling ourselves before God is just trusting his commands, his prohibitions, his boundaries, all right, he gives us everything good and he gives us what's best. The way to humble ourselves here specifically, though, is verse 7. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's just slow down those words. He cares for you. Everything else we say doesn't matter unless you believe those four words. That's it. If you walk away with something, elect exile, he cares for you. Just let it wash over you. Let's, let's say it together. He cares for you. Say it with me. He cares for you. Now you can say it to one another. He cares for you. So simple to say, so easy to forget. So, so encouraging. But, 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 but difficult to hold on to in the middle of some kind of trial or complication. But this, that's the bottom line. Look, it's the foundation for everything he said. He cares for you. He, he knows your sin more than you do. He, he knows your anxiety more than you do. He, he, he is fully aware of all the problems, the difficulties, the pain, whatever you think you've done that would cause him to not care for you. The, the key declaration, if you are uh, following and believing in Christ, he cares for you. I, I, I want us to, to just linger here because... These simple little declarations are what we need to know most clearly and say most often to one another. You know what about speaking the truth in love? Here's truth that will always be loving to say. Let's not overcomplicate it. We, we want to try to say something more profound and, 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 and better, but there, there's nothing really much better than this. He cares for you. He's aware of your anxiety. He's aware of your trouble. He's aware of your fear. He is fully aware of all that's wrong, and he cares for you. This is especially necessary when we're in anxious, overwhelmed, twisted up in anxiety, where, where, where fears paralyze us. Anxiety is one of the most dangerous threats to humility because they produce in us self-pity, which is one of the most dangerous forms of pride. Self-pity is when we take all of our fears, real or imagined or, or exasperated or, or uh, uh, exaggerated, we, 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 we take those and we, we just focus in on them. And we become so focused in on them, there's, there's, a, there's a pride where it's just, my problem. And, and it creates a self-pity where we're just focused on us. And the reason that's a danger to humility because humility says I'm going to take that to God and trust Him with it. There, there's, there's, a, there's a weird exaltation of self when all we're worried about is our problem and our pain and, and our frustration, our fear. Because what we want to do is handle that ourselves. Anxiety, we, we, for some reason, we want to think, all right, anxiety, we're going to put this in a box, we're going to lock it up, and I'm going to, I'm going to store it deep inside. The only person who wants you to do that is Satan. I, I get why, and I've experienced why that seems to be rational. To, 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 to kind of store that inside, because it, it's significant, it's, it's terrifying. I want, to, I want to store it, but... When we sort of inside it, it infects faith. It, it, it hinders faith. It, it, it hinders humility. What, what God invites us to do is, is not store it up and lock it away, but cast it up on it. The most intuitive thing to do with anxiety is store it and hide it and protect it. The most counterintuitive thing to do is, is open up about it. But, but what God instructs us here to do is open up and, and, and cast it upon him. Now, that's going to be hard to do. And this is why it's, it's a plural command. There's a way in which somebody might need to be holding your hands while you're seeking to hold it out for God. When we have anxiety, 
When, when we have real fear, we, we can put it off. And notice these two things go together. Putting on humility is trusting God so we can cast off anxiety. You, you can put on humility, which is trusting the God who cares for you, so that we can cast off the anxiety. It's, it's, it's hard to let go of control of that which we're most terrified of until we see that God, in his mighty power, cares for us. Faith says God cares for me despite my sin and my circumstance. Faith says he who is mighty cares for me. I can trust him. Faith says I will trust him with my anxiety and my burden. I want to I want to flip this passage kind of upside down. I want to I want to walk backwards. The truth. He cares for you. That that is the first belief. He cares for you. You can trust him with everything. If you trust him with your sin, you can trust him with your anxiety. He cares for you. If you if he cares for you, you know then second, you can trust him with your anxiety. You cast it upon him. If he cares for you and you trust him with your anxiety, he gives grace to that humble action. By by giving grace to that humble action, we now know we can be humble towards one another and help each other in those anxieties. And then it goes on. The very foundation of uh, husbands honoring wives and wives submitting and and trusting that you can uh, submit to a governing authority or a, a master What's well, all the foundation of God Almighty cares for you. If, if there's one thing we're going to take away, elect exiles, is those four words. That's, that's what I call easy load ammunition. Or, 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 or what you need to put in your record player. Right? It's simple. He cares for you. It's what we need to know to say to one another. If anxious right now, you're going to see family on some upcoming trip and you're not sure how to talk with uncle so-and-so or what next year has in store or, or how to, to, to really wrestle with, with all the different troubles in the world or, or, or marriage tensions or, or desiring to, to see your children obey or, or come to faith or just scared of the unknown. This is God's medicine. He cares for you. He cares for you. And if you have a difficult time believing that, Christmas is when we see Christ, the Son of God, He comes down to show He cares for us. But it, just like last week, the, the cure for pride is, is looking at the cross, but the, the cure for, for anxiety is looking at the cross. God Himself, God's own Son, came to take our sin away by taking it upon Himself. He he takes the punishment of God away from us by taking it upon himself. He he takes away the curse so that we can be blessed by taking it upon himself. If you're wrestling, if you can trust him with anxiety, look to the cross and see how much he cares about you. The second instruction. Be humble towards one another, towards God. And that means we're, we're, we're trusting him. Well, now the second is be watchful. Watchful. This is verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Sober-minded, watchful. Those two words are are informing each other. Those two words are together for a reason. We've we've seen sober-minded before in in, in chapter 4, verse 7, in a couple of places. There's a seriousness to that command. There's a be serious and, and, and watchful. There's an alertness. Now, as we think about this, 
as the elect together, there's humility within the church. And as exiles, we're looking outside and we're serious and watchful. There's real trouble out there. Well, he, he names the trouble. We have an adversary. The devil. Satan. It's important where you understand who Satan is and an angel created by God who rebelled against God. An angel with great power who, 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 who has some, some pretty straightforward basic schemes that, that seem to be very effective, even though they, they're very straightforward. He lies. He tempts. He accuses. And all that brings about killing and destroying. All right, so, so that's important. If you're not writing that down, you probably want to write that down. Those are the four things you should be aware of. Satan lies, Satan tempts, Satan accuses. He kills and destroys. Here the, the word is devour. Now, we cannot ever say the devil made me do it. He lies to us, telling us the things we already want to believe. We, we, we like the lies. He tempts us with sins and desires we already have. He's a, he's a pretty significant student of us and knows how to tempt us with sins we actually already have within. He accuses us not of false sins. He, he actually accuses us of real sin we've committed. That, that's what makes the accusation so powerful. It's just he accuses us when Christ has already paid the penalty. He lies, telling us things we want to believe. He tempts us with desires we already have. And he accuses us of sin we've really committed. That's, that's why it's effective. And by doing these, he devours. He destroys. If we go back to 1 Peter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The God who cares gives life. Notice our enemy devours, destroys, seeks to bring destruction. There's a cosmic battle. It's a battleground, not a playground. Why we're called to be serious, sober-minded, watchful. Now, God in his grace has given us a battle plan. Look at verse 9. Pretty straightforward. Resist him. Okay, that, that almost sounds like just stop it, right? Just stop doing it. Ah, Satan's pretty clever. He knows how, to, he knows how to, 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 to just tickle our ears enough to believe the lie. He, he, he knows what we already want in terms of uh, justifying sin. It's, it's resist him who's devouring by trusting him who gives life. Uh, Paul's command in Colossians 2 or, or Ephesians 6 is very similar. Stand firm, resist him. Notice, I, I gave you the, the basic schemes of Satan, but the most important way to, to, to live the healthy, full Christian life and, and not be tossed to and fro is by, by being on the rock. You stand firm by knowing Christ. You, you stand firm by being a living stone, being built up on the, live, the, the, the true living stone into that holy temple held together. If you, if you don't know how to stand firm, you, you grow closer to the very truth of God. Know the God who's made promises and fulfilled them. Christmas is a great season to just meditate upon our songbook for that. No, no God has elected you. Given you eternal life, brought you into the, bought you with his precious, the blood, precious blood of Christ. No, Jesus will return and bring a reward or a judgment based upon how we've lived. Let's keep it simple. Be firm in your faith, knowing God cares for you. If we, if we know that truth, if we know he has all authority and he's good, he cares for us, we're able to stand against the lies and temptations. Of Satan. Notice it says Satan roars like a lion. 
That, that roaring is accusing you of sin you've committed to try to scare you to hide in shame. That, that roaring is Satan lying to you, trying to give you that excuse you want to continue in sin. That, that roaring is, is tempting you, that you, you, you need to not worry about God's warning. He's, he, he's trying to, to frighten us away from God and, well, any other direction is fine. As long as we're not standing firm in Christ, he doesn't care what other direction we go in. Stand firm in your faith. We, as God's holy temple, must stand firm with one another and for one another as we seek to hear God's word, share God's word, and remember it together. Notice verse 9, there's a knowing the same kind of suffering. One of the most difficult things is to isolate ourselves and then pretend it's just us anyway. Well, no, we've got to remember that the same kind of sufferings are going on all over the place. Throughout the brotherhood, we, we, we see there verse 12. He, notice the command, stand firm in it. Another brother, Savonis, has, has, has come and he's exhorting you with the, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's even those saved in Babylon of all places. You want to talk about being an exile. Here, there's a, there's a way in which we recognize God's people are scattered everywhere. The assumption is there's small little groups. He's speaking to these, uh, this general epistle to all these different cities. They have small little groups of Christians who, who feel that smallness, who feel that fear, who feel that anxiety. And be aware, God's hand is everywhere. Protecting his people, caring for his people. If you think about what this means to resist him firm in your faith, I want to go back up to verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. A wonderful search with all this free time you have during Christmas. Just the, the mighty right arm of God stretched out throughout Scripture. That's how he brought about the Exodus. That's how we, we, we talk about Christ coming down, the mighty right hand of God coming down with great power to save. We're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that is not too short to reach us. The mighty hand of God that has shown he cares for us. I want to try to pull this together with last week's text. Christ is the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the, the chief shepherd is what we saw last week. When we think about that picture I try to present where, as I think with the church, there's the, the kind of the, the center, and then there's the, the, the members and believers who are drawing near that center, and then there's the outside circle. Well, Christ, the chief shepherd, he, he's feeding that inside group. He's, he's helping them grow as a chief shepherd. Those he's drawing into that center circle, well, that, that's where we see Christ with his mighty hands healing, mending, caring for, br br bringing the healing folks need from whatever they're, they're coming from and whatever's happened to, to, to trust him or to, to kind of get near that center. And those same hands that feed and those same hands that heal those mighty hands that were stretched out with power to save us from our sin well when they're on that outside edge they're terrifying because he's on that outside edge for when satan roars to to give him a devastating blow the the hands that feed us are generous the hands that heal us are, are powerful. The hands that protect us have the same power. That's how we're able to resist him, firm in our faith. We trust the power of Christ to feed us, to heal us, to save us, to destroy the works of the devil. There's a great theme throughout Scripture, Christ the victor. We sang about it in our songbook. Let's get our songbook out. Turn to page 7. Uh, Hannah's song declares it, but let's just go to 
first one of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That the, the whole idea of ransom and deliverance, redemption, that is Christ having victor over an enemy that is abusing and enslaving his people. We see it more explicit even in God rest you merry gentlemen. Second two lines of the first stanza. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. We, we, we like the nativity scene and the, the picture of the shepherds and some animals and the, the angels rejoicing, but the one born is the serpent slayer. The one born comforts us, saves us, and heals us, but he's a warrior. To, to finish the battle. Go down to the next, uh, the last stanza of God rest ye, Mary gentlemen. Fear not then, said the angels, let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. And then joy of the world, that third stanza, no more the sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That curse that was introduced to us when we trusted Satan instead of God. We grow firm in our faith by knowing Christ, our chief shepherd, who heals us, feeds us, Protects us. We can go back to Genesis 3.15 where it was first promised to Satan. You will strike the heel of my anointed, but he'll crush your head. We see this next in Pharaoh who represents the, the, the Satan. He's, he, he hates God and his elect and opposes them and oppresses them. We can see it next in Goliath and the Philistines who hate God's people and, and are mighty and fearful, but God delivers Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging against God. That's, that's the type of Satan that's prowling, seeking to devour. But in the Christmas story, it's, it's presented in a bizarre way. Where, where would Satan be presented in the, 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 the birth of Christ? It's in Herod. That's bizarre because God's son is the son of David, the king of Israel, and Herod represents that king and he, he represents Satan who seeks to kill Jesus. Who, who, who seeks to destroy, he actually destroys many young lives in an attempt to kill Jesus. And then on the flip side, you've got men of the East coming to worship the newborn king. As, as we just think about what this means, Christ the chief shepherd is mighty. He's mighty to heal you. He's mighty to help you in your anxiety. He's mighty to protect you from Satan as you stand firm in your faith. Lastly, we're, we're hopeful. Hopeful. This is verses 10 and 11. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hopeful. Well, at some level, there's hope right there in the first little stanza, right? Suffering a little while. There are folks who have been in suffering for a long time. Well, here, here Peter is declaring there's, there is a time stamp on all suffering. For the elect exile, there, there is a time stamp. Suffering will end at some point. Some suffering feels like it goes on forever, and some suffering is, is for as long as we are here on this earth. But while we're suffering here for a little while, there is a temporary nature to suffering for the elect exiles. And while the suffering is temporary, notice what's eternal. The glory that we've been called into. The glory that we receive from Christ 
again, what we believe about God is important to know how to actually accept these truths because the suffering is what brings anxiety. And sometimes that suffering is so right here, it's hard to actually think ahead to the glory to come. That's why, again, we, we, we have five words this time, but I think they're probably easy to memorize. The God who cares for you is the God of all grace. Look at there in verse 10. What, 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 is, what is his posture towards you? He, he cares for you. He sees you. He knows you. He, he, he's for you. Well, who is he? He's, he's, he's the God of all grace. He, he's not stingy. He, he's, he's, not, he's not keeping some kind of measure to make sure he gets poured out too much. The God of all grace, he has called you. He, he's elected you. He's bought you with the precious blood of Christ. Even now in the midst of the temporary suffering, the God of all grace that cares for you, he's called you into eternal glory. So there's two Hopes in terms of what we're experiencing. There's, there's a hope that the suffering is going to end and there's hope of eternal glory to come. We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 3. He opened up with God who's great in mercy, full of grace. We, we cannot believe the lie that God is stingy. The, 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 the fact that the Father sent His only begotten Son is the most significant demonstration of how full and generous and how stretched out his mighty arm can be. While we are suffering for a little while, the God of all grace has called you to eternal glory. That's what we're waiting on. And notice the confirmation of promise. He himself will restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, now those are all future promises. Those are all, they're going to finally be established. He will finally restore us. He will finally confirm us. He will finally strengthen us and establish us. But I believe we can also say he's restoring us, confirming us, strengthening us, and establishing us. We, we think about the doctrine of perseverance. It will come to the right end. And if we're trusting God in humility, it will end with receiving, uh, being in, invited into the, the glory of Christ. And those who have the hope of that perseverance, we're, we're enduring knowing that God is the restorer, the confirmer, the, uh, the one who strengthens us and establishes us. The, the, the future, there is a final completion. There is a final end. There is a final goal. And, and notice, salvation comes through Christ. The glory comes through Christ. The grace comes through Christ. The, the thing I want us to see in hopefulness is he, he's called you to that eternal glory. He, he will restore us. He, he will confirm us. The God of all grace will strengthen us and establish us. All this to see, be of good courage, Christian. God who is mighty has given us new life. The God who cares helps us now by inviting us to cast our anxieties upon him. The God of all grace promises he will bring all this suffering to pass. And we know he is good in what he promises in suffering because of the suffering he's already presented us in Christ and what that has accomplished for us. So it comes to the only real response today, and that is what Peter gives us in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The king has come. The king rules in righteousness at the right hand of the father. He has committed to shepherd and care for his people. We, we can trust his promises. We can take our anxieties up to the very presence and holiness of God in his name and prayer. And we can trust him by humbling ourselves to follow him. Christmas is a wonderful time to reflect upon the great God who has made promises. 
The promise was that he would send a son to save us. We get to now live on the side of, we're now waiting for that son to come back to finish the work he's begun. As we end with this doxology, it's, it's a praise to him whose kingdom is powerful. The prayers our hearts will be lifted up to him as we consider his great care. The prayers that our hearts are lifted up to him as we cast our anxieties off. The prayers that our hearts learn to praise him as our glorious shepherd. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have made such great promises that we can now trace through the Old Testament and as Christ taught us, as your, your spirit taught us in your word, that we can, we can see your great plan and how you brought it to a fruition in the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, while we wait, we thank you that we're not waiting in a blindness. We don't have to figure out how to fix ourselves or help ourselves. Lord, you've given us your word to know how to stand firm in Christ, to, 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 to be under him as our chief shepherd, to, to be built upon him as, as stones of the living stone. Lord, we, we praise you. We thank you for the new life you've given us as elect exiles. Lord, we, we, we pray for the grace to be humble. We, we pray for the grace to stand and resist as we're watchful. We pray you would help us to be hopeful, longing for the day of Christ's return. In his name we pray. Amen.